episode five. Things don't happen overnight. 10.01 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Let me just start with, with, with this whole thing about woke. We all know what woke means. Being woke means never having to say you're sorry. Woke means never letting anyone say they're sorry. Woke is racist. Big woke means equity, diversification, gender, and racial disparities. This wokeness that's happening at Madison's house and Jefferson's house, where all they do is talk about slavery. Wokeism is about murdering fun. You know what woke means? It means you're a loser. Woke madness now it's drag queens and children and church. The woke is the new religion of the left. The new hip woke is to not like the Jews. What does it mean to be woke? I have, I mean, I don't know what the definition of woke so, so much is. I do, do know that I think most people don't want to be lectured by companies. Get paint. It's taken six weeks to get a sample. It's terrible. We used to get it in two weeks. What do you attribute a lot of this to? Woke. Today on Something Came From Baltimore, it is episode five of Kinda Free, Kinda Wow, a conversation with Laurie Green. Laurie Green is an associate professor of anthropology at Stockton University in New Jersey, where she has taught since 1986. She is the founder and chair of the LGBTQ Youth Safe Space Initiative at Stockton University and is an advocate for the local LGBT community and author of Drag Queens and Beauty Queens, It's Contesting Femininity, Femininity in the World's Playground. You can binge this limited series. It's available now. The link is in the show notes. And you can listen to it at your leisure. You are in control. Music by D-Light. D-Light. It's the 1990 World Click album. Songs by Bobby Short. And let's get into that conversation. We're recording in progress. This is awesome. Uh, so... When we have these heady conversations, you know, you have follow-up questions. And as of yesterday, walked away talking about or, or the energy level it takes to be an activist. And the one thing that, that I noticed that while I was kind of going through my stint of activism is that I was having problems and I would tell my friends and immediately I could see a glaze over their eyes that like they had no interest whatsoever because they didn't know how to respond or they didn't really care. They're like, this is, you got yourself into this. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And it's also true. <laughs> so, so I felt alienated, you know, and also I'm, I'm working with a group who I'm like the leader of the group. And all I'm doing is, you know, trying to get people to come together in a positive way. I can mention that, hey, I'm, I'm having a little struggle here, but the group doesn't want to hear it either. Like, that's not something that they want to be a part of uh, or that would turn them off. It's it's tough. Uh, so, you know, when, when it feels like you're kind of doing this alone. All you're trying to do is make things nicer for people and you're having this internal struggle. Yeah, I mean, you sort of summarized it really well from what I was <laughs> thinking about yesterday i mean i i don't think people intend to do that i just don't again i i my main feeling is that people feel you're just being divisive um and that as long as everybody's nice you should just go with the flow and everything is fine and i think that again when you have strong opinions about 
work that has to be done that make people think about what they're doing too, because, you know, part of this asks people to, you know, look at their own transphobia, for example, or look at their own racism, which we all have, because, you know, it's part of the institutions in our society, these things, and even looking at their own homophobia, because, I mean, a lot of gay people are homophobic, you know, I mean, they have a lot of internalized self-hatred and, um, and they sort of um, express that by denigrating gay people who act in ways that they think make them look bad. You know what I mean? This sort of enacting the stereotype or something. So I think a lot of times what we're making people do is look at those things. And that's not, uh, that's uncomfortable. And a lot of people feel like you're accusing them of being those things, you know, in a way that, uh, that we, you know, without understanding that we all are, you know, we all have to work on those things, uh, myself included, you know, I mean, um, and so I think that that's maybe the root, you know, of, of where all this comes from is that the feeling of, because I have had people say to me, well, you're calling me a racist, or you're calling me a misogynist, or you're calling me transphobic. And I'm not calling them that. I'm pointing out that some of the things they might be doing or saying express that, <laughs> you know, and um, and so let's look at that. Like, why is this happening? But that's not how they take it. You know, they take it as maybe as possibly as me telling them that they are one of those things instead of like, let's look at this. Let's Let's try to look at our own motivations and our own prejudices and why we might be behaving a certain way. I don't know the answer to, I don't know the solution. I think that, um, you know, if you want to do this kind of work, you have to have thick skin. And I, I really do think my Achilles heel is that my skin needs to be a bit thicker. <laughs> I, I wish it was. I, I'm always working on that. Or that you're so pressed to believe that you're right in what you're doing, that that you can put blinders on everyone else's struggles, you know, with this process. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure there's there's faults all the way around, you know, with whenever we try to communicate with people, it's always a difficult process, no matter no matter what we're trying to communicate about when the issues are anything but just niceties, you know, so it's it's interesting. I mean, I'd I'd love advice on it actually. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I could yeah. seriously we could bring somebody on here that's smarter than we are to give us advice yeah. on this. That would be great. It would be it'd be great to have like uh, activist one hundred and one classes so people can go. Oh, this is how we work together as a unit to get this done. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, I think every time it you know something goes wrong, I uh, you know we learn something from it. Hopefully, you know. And so every time something goes wrong, I think when I'm you know trying to get something done. I have to look at what I, you know, what I've done and try to modify that and, and, um, you know, try to learn from it. Um, Even if I didn't do anything wrong in my mind, there's still different ways of doing the same thing, you know? And, um, and so I, I think that that's something that's important for anybody that's engaging in this to think about, like what, what could I have done differently to bring everybody together more effectively? I mean, I was in the, uh, the Venice park association, uh, you know, where there's just like neighbors all getting together. They just didn't want violence, trash. They had uh, people coming in, to, you know, for the school board talking about topics. And there was this one guy who was violently against every single thing that happened. And uh, it was uh, wordsmithing everything. Like if someone says something, 
they listen to the the sentence and they're like, oh, well, you, then you mean this. And they were like going off on different tangents. It seems like the, the, the saboteur is always in a group like that whose not intention is to move the group along, but to, to, to impede all progress whatsoever. And that's their high is that they walk away knowing that they stopped all kind of movement. It's really interesting as a human dynamic. And I, I don't have an answer for that either, but you do see it in groups like that. Yeah. And you know, and the upside of that potentially, I always try to say is, you know, it's usually personal when that happens. It's not about the group. It's about a person in the group that they want to remove or stop or teach a lesson or whatever is in their mind. Um, but you hope once that's resolved and that person is, let's say, off or made powerless, that then the group, those same people, you know, pick up the reins and do something good with it. Um, when they don't, I think that's when there's a problem. You know, when it was just about destroying and not about rebuilding, <laughs> because, you know, I can see situations where destruction might be useful, you know, even if it's not fair or not nice. Um, so and, you know, for example, let's look at what happened in Philly um, with their pride organization this last two years. Basically, they destroyed their pride organization, you know, and, and that needed. But in their minds that needed to happen for something else to grow out of it. Now, however, the responsibility is on them to grow something out of it that everybody can enjoy, not just their particular uh, interest group. And so now they get to see how difficult that process is. <laughs> and they did. But they still have time. They can still, let, show me the money. Let's see it. Let's see what you have here. Yeah. You know? um, and And that is really, to me, you know, what separates the people that um, eventually make change and, and help the community and the people that don't, even though they might intend to, you know, they have a special interest. Great. Let's, if you need to knock down the structure and rebuild it, I can see how that could be the case, you know, I mean, but then you have now the burdens on you to rebuild it in a way that it serves everybody, not just your interest group. I think people were really unhappy with the product that was kept on coming out and was very similar to the year and the year and the year. Mm, and, yeah. and so it was that part where they're like, wait a minute, you know, either we need a, we need a redo or refresh or. Right. It's yeah. I mean, it was, it was what they were asking was, was well-founded. It's a shame that it had to be knocked down to build it up, but we, I don't know what happened in the background of that process, you know, uh -huh. and, um, and how resistant they were to, uh, making changes and accommodating uh, those interests. I don't. I don't know the answer to that. But it's a it's a great time to do it. It was right around the COVID time period, and and you you know basically you couldn't have large groups anyways. You're going to attack a a fragile structure. You might as well do it during the COVID time period. Yeah, <laughs> I do hope they build it back though. I mean, looks like nothing's happening this year. Um, so it'd be nice to see that you know that same group uh, yeah. take responsibility for also uh, bringing back this kind of celebration of our community in a more unified um, and inclusive way, you know, and show yeah. us how to do it. You know, I mean, they have an opportunity to show everybody how to do it. And I hope they do. Yeah. I mean, so when you get into to this type of thing, you're, you're getting money uh, from the, the city and you're getting money from donations from like say uh, Coors Light or whatever. So, 
it, it was easy to give it to one person who's been there for 20 years. They know what they're getting. They know that the money is, is it may be wasted, but they're not, it, it's not, it's going to where it needs to go. And as a, a new group, you know, now you have to create all those relationships and they're a little weary about, you know, providing money that, that, that is, has been tried and true. That's a lot of AIDS fund uh, groups in the, are they're they're not as radicalized as I guess as the the, the pride right now because it's a well oiled machine. We know where we give the money at. We know what they do. Um, you know we don't really ask that many questions. So it's kind of a, a business transaction thing where in now in Philly they have to start from scratch and they have to like create these relationships and make sure that they get the money because it's always about the money. Yes. Yeah. I mean, well, you have to have the money to you know, put on events, certainly, if you're, if you're wanting to do that. And there's always compromises that you have to make when you take money. And again, I think that's little appreciated by those people that haven't engaged in uh, community partnershiping, you know, I mean, where, you know, for example, in Atlantic City, we have little recourse, but to partner with the casinos in terms of resources. You know, I'm not entirely gung-ho about the ethical and moral values of the casinos, you know, so if if my organization was to take money from them, I have to somehow, um, you know, rationalize that relationship in my, in my mind as being for the greater good of the organization. And it's a start, you know, in terms of the organization and then, um, you know, imagining and taking steps toward educating that organization on LGBTQ issues, for example, you know, and, um, and, and, you know, it, it's got it's got to start somewhere. And I think that sometimes people um, who have legitimate complaints about being left out forever, um, when they see you doing these things, they they don't understand that things just don't happen overnight. I mean, and that of course, that's why they, they believe they do. That's what the radical change is about, you know, so. It's just, they're not mutually exclusive, but I think they're two different strategies for trying to accomplish the same thing. And I think, um, you know, when we're in one of those groups that's being, um, you know, just discriminated against, um, it's hard to be patient with those that process, you know, the slower process, the one that doesn't dismantle, you know, and explode things. Mm-hmm. And I get that because I, I mean, I've been on that side of it too, you know, where I just wanted to blow everything up as well because I didn't see it ever changing. <laughs> with the way it was. And so, you know, I think if we can be, if we can understand the other side's position and we can, we can have a conversation. I have to tell you, this may be because I'm old, Tom, but I feel like a lot of our problems nowadays stem from the fact that we don't try to resolve things in face-to-face communications, you know, that the first line is texting, which is the worst, the worst way to communicate with someone you're having a conflict with. Um there's so much room for misunderstanding. I think email is only slightly better because you get time to craft it. You know, you think you can edit it. Um, um, but the best thing is just, you know, to call, you know, or to get in a room together and talk things out. And and I think younger folks are less comfortable um, doing that than I am. And so... Yeah. And so it, it's, I think a lot of this conflict that people are having now, the level of it, I think a lot of it's based on the fact that we just are not comfortable as comfortable getting in, you know, face-to-face conversation with people anymore. Activism now is Twitter. I know I'm not fully engaged as I was before I've gotten burned, 
it's so much easier to write a, a, a tweet, pass it out and have like a, a fight with strangers throughout the day and feel like I've, I've, I've uh, accomplished something. We were talking about act up. We didn't have, we didn't have a Twitter. Uh, we didn't have email. We went to a center and we uh, sat there as a group and we felt everyone's passion as to what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, it's, so you're right. You know, that's how you, I guess, create a, a village is, is to have people face to face really working together. Yeah. It's hard to say some of the nasty things you might say when you're looking at someone in the eye, you know, and, and I think we're always sorry when we, you know, when we get riled up and, and say things, I know I am, I know, again, my Achilles heel is my emotions and my, the instrument of my self harm is texting, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, I fail often more, you know, more than I'd like at least, but I, I try to remind myself not to text, you know, um, to try to resolve problems that as soon as there's a problem, that is a, Hey, try to give a phone call, you know, and see if they answer. Um, and I, I, again, this, this uh, communication, uh, the, who is it? Marsha McLuhan said the medium is the message, you know, the medium does matter. You know, texting is different as a different message than email. Email is a different message than phone call. Phone calls a different message than face to face, you know? And so we, we want to consider the medium we're speaking through and, um, and it's, um, it's relative effectiveness for different tasks, you know? Texting is great for like that quick, oh, this got done or question. It's really not good for anything else. Yeah. <laughs> In my mind, yeah. At least the way I text. I'm not a good texter, you know. No, so, me neither. Yeah. The, I want I have one one thought and then we're gonna get into relationships and we're gonna yeah. talk about that. But the uh one thing that you know, uh, people get really upset about corporate donors, like okay, so we're having the the Philly uh pride. Um, and uh, it's a block party. It costs a lot of money and your corporate donors are going to carry you through, uh, you know, there's other people, citizens that are, you know, offering $25 per person, or they're giving, you know, a couple thousand here or there, but that's not enough to drive something as big as this. So you do have to take corporate donors and you do have to, you willingly take corporate donors because you need that money to, to create your program. And, uh, of course, like the corporate donor could be, uh, very gay friendly on in June and then July, you know, support Republicans. So it, it's very possible that that, um, satisfies, you know, their obligation that they say, oh yeah, we do give money to LGBTQ. It's yeah, a contradiction. They call that, um, you know, I guess the general term for that, I think is rainbow marketing, you know? Yeah. Everybody's gay friendly in June when there's money to be made. And then the flags come down off the businesses after that. And, um, you know, it's a problem generally. Um, I don't know, you know, some people's solution to that is boycott. These people aren't really for us, so don't go there. Again, I think supporting, you know, something is something. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, that- it, get them in, it's a moment for education, you know, and uh teaching them about what a real ally is and what a real ally does. You know, it's not just on weekends or on Saturdays when you can make money off a drag show. It's every day. And it's not just during Pride Month in June. It's every month. And this is these are the what we expect from our allies, you know. And and in my organization that I was in, we actually had like a brochure that explained all that to the businesses that we went to to have events. 
Um, and I think it was very useful. And it was drawn up by someone on my board that was an ally. She wasn't uh, gay. And I, I appreciated that because I felt that she, she really had a handle on what people would hear, you know, would be able to hear and how to get our message across. Um, and, but I don't think it's worth throwing people out because they don't meet your, all your standards. I think, again, it's a moment and in, in an opportunity for f- further engagement and education. Sure. But at the same time, I mean, you know, you're making a, a large event with, you know, thousands of dollars. You're, you're like, I'll take that money and then I'll get back to you later. <laughs> the other option is not to take the money and not to have the event until you do have those donors. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, most people are not willing to do that. You know? So <laughs> the only way you can be righteous there, I guess, in those terms is to just not have pride until you can convince the businesses and, and know that they're all sincerely LGBTQ friendly. You know, mm-hmm. I, that's rough. That's that a hard, rough. hard task. <laughs> We're going to change the subject to relationships. This is a, a major pivot in our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always ask like my friends or even my partners, potential partners, like what would you consider a romantic time with your partner? What would that look like? Hmm. I mean, you know, to me, romance always involves sincere conversation, you know, um, being just by yourselves and not with other people certainly would be part of my prerequisite for romantic. And I think, I think when you put everything else aside and the, and the, the time you spend together is about your relationship, I guess that's what's romantic to me instead of something else, like something you're working on or something, a problem with the house or, so it's not just being alone with that person. It's about being alone with that person and the only thing that is the topic of conversation or is is both of you. Oh my God, you are the first person to say something like that ever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, you know, normally it's like, oh, we're going on a romantic weekend, blah, blah, blah. You know, I always say that what I would find romantic is on a, let's say, a Sunday afternoon, like you got the, the Sunday newspaper. Mm. and we're you know just enjoying the paper and then we go into the the living room we sit down and we check on each other how are we doing how are we doing as a a couple what are your needs what are my needs that kind of thing and it's that that thing where then you know where you stand and you can go all that uh anxiety about the relationship goes away and you can enjoy your week you know, it's I, so funny. It's so funny that you, you say that. First of all, I think that could definitely be, I mean, that's a scenario that could be in my definitions. Or yeah, it's oh, weird but, because yeah. it's weird. You said the exact same thing that I've been saying for years. <laughs> well, you know, um, I, I thought it's funny because I was having a conversation with, you know, my very oldest and best friend in the world about, um, about you know, why do we always feel insufficient? when we're in a relationship. I mean, no matter how confident we are in the relationship, there's this little niggling thing where we feel potentially insufficient, you know, and I, usually it plays out in physical relationship that we have, but not always, you know, it's like, and it's an interesting question. Like, I think most of us don't just don't think we're enough, you know, and then and, and maybe it's because what we talked about before, you know, that we we expect that we have to be everything for this person, you know. And so 
we always have this sense that maybe we're not enough and we're, we're not sufficient. And that, and that's what leads to needing these conversations, you know, about, uh, am I fulfilling you? Are you fulfilling me? This it's like, it's very strange as human beings that we're like this. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I came out when I was 26. So I told my sister, like, I never had a role model of, of dating. Like I, I didn't see, I didn't know what that looked like, but also, uh, you know, I'm young. Like, I, I, although I'm 26, I'm just like 14, 15, trying to date and see what it's all about. So I have an adult mind with a, a, a child, you know, disposition about what relationships are. And, and there's, you know, like people are like, Oh my God, you, you're a gay guy. You keep on getting burnt. And I'm like, wait, I'm only two years out. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm making mistakes here and, and learn, hopefully learning from them. A lot of times they did, but it's, it's that thing where, you know, I, I just got a late start and had no idea of what is, what feels good, what feels bad. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm somebody that's, you know, been with both men and women. Um, so in the sense that I've had sort of like a heterosexual relationship, even though in the heterosexual relationship, they know I'm queer, you know, I mean, um, but I don't know that it's any different. <laughs> I think it's still I the think, same. Huh? I think relationships are hard, you know, and I, uh, again, I, for me, it's, I think a lot of it, and I believe this for everybody, but I don't know is about the expectations that we have that are, you know, can't, again, that are unrealistic and, and it's also negotiation because, you know, as human beings, we are social animals, but we are, you know, inherently self-preserving, you know, and, and so we're always going to try to do what's in our self-interest as well. And being in a relationship means there's somebody else, you know, that you have to consider it. And it's not the same, no matter how much you care about your partner. It's not the same, for example, as like how I feel about my kids. Like I would do anything for my kids. I would sacrifice my happiness to some extent for my, for my children. But I think that parents and children, that's a very special and unique relationship. It's not one that we can, the same level of um, commitment or caring or self-sacrifice that we can have um, with our partners generally, at least I can't, maybe I should speak for myself. And, and I think that that's, you know, that's part of it. We're looking out for them, but at the same time, we're looking out for ourselves. And, and, and that's, that's hard because we have this very intent and, but we have the intensity in the relationship with that, that we also have to manage that we don't have with other people. You know, so we have other expectations about like loyalty and, um, you know, all this other kind of stuff that we would just never have from the rest of our friends. So, yeah. it's, you know, it's rough. Relationships are hard. At least I find it <laughs> hard. And then I look at some of my friends, two of my friends, um, you probably know them. Um, they just had their 27th anniversary. And I tell you, I say to them all this time because I sincerely mean it. They make it look easy. I mean, I have a lot of friends. Most of the people I know in a relationship do not make it look easy. (laughs) I'm like, thank God I'm single. Um, But they make it look easy. And so they figured it out. You know, they figured out what it is they need to do to balance those two concerns, their own happiness and the happiness of their partner, you know? Um, And that's great. You know, it's great. And I, I know for a fact with them, they're very different people and it has to do with the fact that they accept that about each other, you know, and they don't have, they don't expect the other person to 
be like them in any way, shape or form. And um, I think that sometimes that happens and you were talking about codependency, but I think it happens that that codependent feature happens in a lot of people's relationships to some extent, you know, that we, we become the other person um, and their desires. And, and if, if those are undesires, then that creates an underlying resentment, which comes out as soon as there's conflict, you know, in the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I always talk about the pop tarts, you know, um, I, have these conversations that became heated and 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 uh they they pop up you know like there was some kind of anger issue or or something causes a a a concern of you know like maybe you don't love me as much as i think you should or blah 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 and i said i get you pop tarts i get you the flavor that you want i don't even ask i just make sure the house is filled with pop tarts you never have you never go without them it's not my flavor that I like. I just make sure you have your pop tarts. And I'm like, can't you see that? Like I do little things all, <laughs> all the time that, yeah. that makes me show you that I care. And I'm thinking about you. It's the pop tarts. I said, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, that's, you know, that's a difference between people. And again, this is my best friend and I, because he doesn't ever express his emotions uh, verbally. He's a man. First of all, he's a heterosexual man. And, uh, and very, very rarely, only on, I've known him my whole life, and maybe on two occasions have I seen him express his emotions, uh, you know, verbally to me. But I know what he's, I know him well enough to know he's caring, and I accept that. You know, but it's funny because I had a friend the, um, the other day just broke up with her partner, and uh, she said, well, you know, they never, they never, I don't think they love me, they never say it. And I said, well, some people don't say it. And she said, well, that's not good enough. Wow. I want to hear it. And, and again, that's asking, I mean, I don't know what, what, what the truth is, but it's still asking somebody who to do something that there, is not them. Do you know what I mean? It's, re, it's requiring a, a, a way of expressing yourself that isn't in that person, you know, yeah. and, and that's just not, that's not fair on, 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 on many levels, you know, but, but I get it because that, you know, what she's saying is I need to hear that. You know, it, it, it's, I need to hear it occasionally. It's not, it's not good enough. Um, and then that we have to deal with our own needs ourselves. You know, why is it that I need to hear that if I know? Because mm-hmm. obviously there's something there that where you don't know. <laughs> so otherwise I don't think you would care. I don't know. I don't know. It could be either, right? It could be a, a failing of that person or it could be that there's something actually wrong and that's why they need to hear but I mean, to me, I don't know. Talk to someone else who's really good at relationships to <laughs> get a different answer. But you know, um, romantic relationships are not my thing. You know, not my strength in this life. <laughs> you were talking about homophobia, like if, if you're, you know, we have baggage that we have through our childhood that we're bringing into a relationship along with the social norms that are pressed upon you, financial mm-hmm. obligations and stress and. You got all that, and then you got homophobia on top of it, and then you're like, "Hey, come on in, let's let's make a family." It's it's a lot to unpack. It's a lot, yeah, and, it's and a lot. And a lot of relationships don't, and they're like, "Okay, well, this is what we do. We're going to play house, and this is the the thing, and this is how it's going to work." And uh, it may work for for a while, but it's it's just if you keep those that luggage unpacked, it's just you know constantly. Yeah, I- 
exactly. think you're right. There's no question in my mind, and again, this is just my opinion, that I mean, gay relationships, you know, um, are it's very hard to have them be successful when they're not out in the open and honest in every way that a heterosexual relationship would be. Eventually that's going to catch you. You know, I, I, I agree with you. There's just too much, there's too much stress in it. There's too much sort of secrecy in it. And you start thinking, well, like, when am I not going to be a secret at some level, you know, here there's, and that, that always makes people feel badly when they're, there's reasons you would be a secret, but it's no fun being that secret, you know, and that that puts a lot of strain on a relationship, no matter, again, no matter what level that is. I mean, I have friends that are out, but like the, one of the partners doesn't go to anything with us because she, because she's afraid her work, she doesn't want to be known as gay at work, even though everybody knows. Sure. Like, you know, like, like to do <laughs> things, you know, and like, I would find that extremely stressful if I were her partner. Well, when we were doing the Be Visibles, you know, uh, initially, it made it very clear that I couldn't, I couldn't take a venue that had outside windows because people were afraid that, that someone was going to look in the window and see that there is a group of gay people in there and that they would be attached to it. So, uh, that was something that I was like, wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> That's something that I'm going to be very, you know, cautious of because I do want these people to show up, you know, so. You know, it gets to that point where uh, you make a lot of compromises. And sometimes you have to look at society and say, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. Like, I don't know why I'm walking around thinking something's wrong with me when, when there's not. And I, I need to be equally in your face as as, as uh, standing beside you. I know that that's a, a, something that I've, like, have worked on for years, thinking that, Maybe I'm less than, or I don't want to appear to, to like, I don't want to, I don't want to take the the space in the room. I just want to sit back because I I don't, I don't want to be judged. And I don't want to, I want, I don't want people to know that I'm gay and think less of me. So it's, it's a conversation that you have in your head that is really crazy. And that's not where, go ahead. Yeah, stigma is such an interesting thing um, because, you know, when you're part of a stigmatized group, um, there are different strategies for dealing with it because all of us, we just want to be accepted. You know, we're just all, we're looking for acceptance. And when we're, let's say you're a gay man or a gay woman, um, cisgendered, um, you know, we can walk around the street and nobody knows we're gay if we want to. I mean, you know, so we have the opportunity to pass as straight um, and you know, that might inform our strategy for what we're talking about, you know, so I'm just gay in my home with my partner. That's when we relax and we act gay, you know, <laughs> but, but when I'm out on the street, you know, we, people know we're partners, but we act as we don't touch each other. We would never go to an office party and hold hands or, or kiss each other, you know, peck each on the cheek. We would never do something like that because that is sort of like, uh, that's going to make it the elephant in the room to those people. They know we're gay, but they don't have, want to have to deal with it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's one strategy is sort of like the passing strategy or the, um, another, or the covering strategy, which is just like, everybody knows, but I just make sure that I behave in a certain way, which makes those other people like straight people comfortable. Yes. That would be the covering strategy, but then there's, and we, we can do that. We're able to, because 
you know, we're not, oh, there's nothing obtrusive about us that we can't cover up, right? But then if you're somebody like a trans individual, um, their, their very presence is obtrusive, right? So they can't use that strategy, you know, and that's why they're going to go, well, then my strategy is now in your face. This is who I am. If you don't like it too bad, you know, their strategy becomes a rejection of that desire to cover, you know, desire to make nice. And so when we critique that, we have to remember they don't have the choices that we have, you know, for, for managing our stigma. They are unabashedly different, you know, and they are visibly and obtrusively different. And so the only strategy they have for trying to get acceptance is to force it on people. You know, what else could they do? I mean, there, there's, you know, you, you have to accept me. I'm a human being, you know. Um, and I think we need to remember that when we critique people um, for the choices that they make, that we don't all have the same choices. You know, we don't all have the same options for coping with our stigmatization, you know, and our um, the biases against us. Um, and I would say that, too, about, you know, people of color in our community. You know, they have to deal with that stigma as well and manage that. And I guess it's a lot, you know, you, you think it's a lot trying to manage your gay stigma as like a white man or a white woman. Think about ha- having to manage three or four of them, like being a black trans woman, you know, and having to yeah. manage three of them, you know, I mean, <laughs> or more, <laughs> maybe, maybe you're like disabled. Now you got five, you know, and you're, and you wonder why people get angry because it's a lot, you know, <laughs> it's really a lot. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I think we should all try to remember that as a community. All right, we're at less than a minute, so we're going to go to the next one. All right, we'll go to the next one. All right, I'll see you on the other side. Live at the Carlisle, it's Bobby Short, the heebie-jeebies. Ooh, I got the heebie-jeebies. Well, let's shake that thing.
episode five is over. Next up, episode six, Charlie's 20-point profile. You don't have to wait till next week. You're binge-worthy. You're binge-worthy. Go on ahead. All 14 episodes of Kind of Free, Kind of Wow are available. Just subscribe. The link is in the show notes. It's available to everyone and everywhere. You don't have to wait. You just don't have to. End of episode.